Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nilsson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. We don't need to remind you of the prominence of medical negligence claims these days. With increasing pressure on hospitals and doctors due to rising patient numbers, education of the public of their right to make a claim for medical negligence, and increased advertising from compensation law firms representing claimants on a no-win, no-fee basis. The media reports on the most shocking cases, a cluster of baby deaths in Victoria, a sponge left inside a patient in Sydney. But most complications are less dramatic. For example, an otherwise healthy patient contracting an infection after their operation. Where do we draw the line between a complication and negligence? I'm Melissa Carrius. And I'm Emma Harmon. And we're lawyers in the Barry Nelson Health Law Team based in Brisbane. Welcome to the checkup when we're looking at when a doctor's liable to their patients. First, for some context, imagine this you're a GP in a North Queensland practice. One of your patients, a 43 year old female, comes to see you. She reports having headaches and neck pain for several weeks despite taking pain medication and having chiropractic treatment since she saw you a week ago. Her headaches are getting worse and it looks like she's having difficulty moving her neck. She also says that she experiences some facial flushing. You refer her for a CT scan of the neck and she comes back the next day for the results. You report that the CT scan shows five bulging discs in her cervical spine which is in keeping with a history of cervical disc degeneration. You prescribe pain medication and bed rest. Six days later, she comes back to see you. She's still in extreme pain and has difficulty moving. So you refer her to the Cairns Hospital. At hospital, she's diagnosed with cryptococcal meningitis, a rare fungal infection with features of raised temperature, neck stiffness, chronic headache, aversion to light and nausea. And as a result of this condition, she is left blind and deaf. She brings a claim against you in medical negligence. So are you liable? So Emma, let's talk through the approach a judge would take in deciding whether a doctor or hospital is liable to its patient in a medical negligence case. Where do we begin? The first question is whether a duty of care is owed, which is not usually in dispute. It's fairly uncontroversial that health professionals owe a duty to act with reasonable care and skill in all of the ways in which they exercise their skill and judgment. So this extends to the examination, diagnosis and treatment of patients and provision of information to patients. The second question is what standard of care and treatment is required of the professional? And this will be what is reasonable in a particular scenario. So how does a judge decide what is reasonable? A judge will look objectively at how a reasonable health professional in the same position would have acted in the same situation. There is legislation in all states and territories that prescribe factors that need to be considered in deciding what is reasonable, including the probability of harm occurring and the seriousness of that harm. You are judged by what would be expected of a reasonable professional in your circumstances. So a GP will be judged by what a reasonable GP should have done in the same situation. 
and a specialist or a health professional who holds themselves out as having a special skill is expected to meet a higher or a different standard. And hospitals and medical centres will have differing obligations to their patients which are more overarching, such as coordinating staff and patient services. For instance, following up on test results or missed appointments. Often the duties owed by institutions and individuals will overlap. So once the standard of care and treatment is set, it's then a question of whether the health professional has met that standard. In our example, the patient alleged that a reasonable GP would have physically examined her neck, taken further history of her complaints and referred her to a neurologist, specialist, physician or emergency department sooner. On the other hand, the GP argued that the patient had overstated the severity of her symptoms in retrospect. They weren't so severe when she presented to warrant referral and in fact were consistent with her cervical condition. There also needs to be a connection between the professional failure and the patient's injury or detrimental outcome. The patient needs to show that the failure caused the injury. Legal causation is different to medical causation. Legally, the patient needs to show that it is more likely than not that the failure materially contributed to the injury or detrimental outcome. If a medical expert is prepared to say that a causal connection is possible, then a judge can decide that it's probable. The concept of causation is simple in theory, but often difficult to apply to a real life situation. Expert evidence will usually be required on what would have happened with appropriate care and treatment. In our example from North Queensland, the GP argued that further examination inquiries would not have detected anything to prompt a referral and so would not have avoided the patient's outcome. However, the infectious disease experts agreed that if a diagnosis of cryptococcal meningitis was made at the time of the second GP consultation, then treatment would have been able to be commenced sooner and it is more likely than not, which is all you need to show legally, that the patient would not have been left blind and deaf. So what if you can point to a doctor who would have treated the patient in the same way that you did? Legislation in each state allows health professionals to avoid liability if they can establish that they acted in a manner which is widely accepted by their peers as competent practice. The defence is usually established by expert evidence that endorses the conduct of the health professional. The expert must be briefed with all of the factual information that was known to the defendant health professional at the time of treatment and also be appropriately qualified to ensure that the evidence is accepted by the court. Being appropriately qualified means that the expert, through their knowledge, training and experience, is able to advise on the clinical treatment under review. Usually in practice, this means that the expert has the same expertise as the defendant for instance, in the North Queensland scenario, you would expect expert evidence from an experienced GP and preferably one with experience with medical issues common to that area. The fact that there are differing widely accepted methods of treatment does not prevent any one or more or all of the opinions being relied on. And the practice does not have to be universally accepted to be considered widely accepted. However, this defensive peer professional opinion cannot be relied upon if the court considers that the opinion is irrational or unreasonable. The GP in North Queensland obtained an independent expert opinion from a GP with over 30 years experience. That expert said that taking into account that the GP only had a short amount of time to see the patient, the reported symptoms, the underlying cervical condition, 
and the rarity of the tropical disease, something which most GPs would not see in their lifetime, the treatment was appropriate. On the other hand, the patient's expert GP said that her neck should have been examined. This would have revealed neck stiffness, which together with the facial flushing did not fit with the cervical condition. And this should have alerted the GP to a more widespread neurological disorder, which required treatment. So what do you think happened to the GP in North Queensland? Was she liable? Well, after an 11-day trial in the Supreme Court, the judge found that the GP had breached her duty of care by not physically examining the patient's neck and by not inquiring further about her headache and facial flushing symptoms. However, his honour found that these breaches did not cause her injuries. The judge essentially agreed with the GP that taking these extra steps would not have detected anything to prompt the GP to respond differently, much less diagnose a patient with cryptococcal meningitis. The judge also found that the peer opinion defence was made out. So the patient lost and received no compensation. Unsurprisingly, she appealed. Three Supreme Court judges agreed that the GP had breached her duty of care. They also found that the GP ought to have referred the patient to a specialist after the second consultation, which would have led to earlier treatment and a better outcome. So the patient on appeal was also able to establish causation. The majority rejected the peer opinion defence on appeal, saying that the expert GP opinions were based on incorrect factual assumptions about what actually occurred during the consultations. So the patient ended up being successful and received $6.7 million in damages. Is that the answer you had? Don't worry if it wasn't, because this case goes to show that even four Supreme Court judges can have vastly different views. Medical negligence cases can be complex and involve a great deal of factual and expert evidence. But we hope that you have a better understanding of what factors play a role in deciding whether a health professional is liable to their patient. Our main tip for you is to document, document, document. This case turned to a large extent on what the patient reported to the GP and what actually occurred during the consultation. It's often years later that a claim is brought and difficult to cast your mind back to remember much aside from what's in your notes. So these records really are crucial in defending claims. If you ever face a situation where a claim is made against you, or you believe that a claim may be made against you, then you should contact your insurer immediately. Seeking early assistance with dealing with a claim or potential claim will put you in the best position to defend the claim moving forward. Thank you for tuning into the checkup. We have links to the North Queensland judgments, which are real cases, in our episode notes, and welcome any feedback you have or health law topics you would like to know more about. For more insights on health law, go to bnlaw.com.au.